feel anxious about making important decisions? You're not alone. In today's episode, my discussion with financial advisor Peter Ditchburn about financial matters and anxiety evolves into an exploration of how anxiety helps us make the big decisions in our lives, not just about money, but also about significant matters generally. Welcome to The Anxiety Advantage, the podcast that asks, how can we thrive in an age of anxiety? I'm Yang Mei Ui. I'm a writer and podcaster. I'm not an expert on anxiety. I have no medical or therapy type qualifications. I'm a writer. And like many people, I've struggled with anxiety. My purpose in these podcasts is to explore with curiosity how these very human feelings affect all our lives. The format for today's episode is a little different. It's a more reflective piece with input from my guest, Peter Ditchburn. Peter is an independent financial advisor specialising in retirement and later life. He's also my financial advisor. Peter and I talk about financial anxiety in the context of making investment decisions. But what emerges very strongly for me as the main theme of this episode is actually how we make important decisions around the big things that really matter to us. Everything that Peter and I pick apart in our conversation about the decision-making process can be applied to any major decision we may face in all areas of our lives, especially where money is a factor. I started by asking Peter what his work involves. So what we do is helping people with making decisions and helping with their planning, uh, whether it's financial planning or planning in with respect to estate planning, which is to do with what happens after death to inheritances and protecting the family wealth as it goes through generations. I do have a few clients under the age of 55, but typically these are a result of me trying to join the dots between members of a family. So I'll start off by advising grandma and grandpa and then the parents and then the grand- grandchildren will then get involved. Um, because obviously what we like to do is help understand how the different relationships in the family work and how to pass money through the generations from one to the next. So I do have a few uh, youngsters in their 20s, but typically uh, this is a result of being the advisor for the whole family. For someone like me, financial jargon can make my brain glaze over or an anxious little knot start to form in my gut. I don't really understand the complexities of pensions and investing strategy. My brain glazing over is I feel a defence mechanism against panic around something I don't understand. Peter has been helpful for me in that he has the knack of translating financialese into language I can understand. Unlike me, Peter seems fascinated by all the ins and outs of financial strategies and often uses the word fun for the problems that he helps his clients to solve. I define advice as transactional. You know, what am I doing right now? What problems need to be solved? Which provider is best? What insurance company to use? What is the product that we're effectively selecting? Whereas planning for me is a lot more of the fun part of the process, where we look at 
what it is you're hoping to achieve and what things you want to do over the course of a retirement. And by examining what actually life is for, what do you want to do with, um, you know, how do you want to spend your time? If we can then organize all the financial things around that, we're focusing far more on, um, you know, delivering that sort of that, that return on the money. In fact, one of the more fun things that I do in terms of inheritance tax, you know, people talk about, you know, investing and gifting, but my preferred form of inheritance tax planning is to spend money. Because, of course, if you have a 40% inheritance tax bill, the person with the money gets, for every, you know, for every £6,000 the children inherit, there's £10,000 that the parents can spend uh, before the inheritance tax is paid on their death. So one of the more fun things that I do in terms of the cash flow model is where people are already financially secure and they have liquid wealth um, over and above what they need to investigate how much more they can spend and still have that financial security. Which explains why he is a financial advisor and I'm not. Let's take a deep dive into financial advice and the nuts and bolts of making decisions around our money. Okay. I mean, everyone's different. Everyone has their own sort of unique um, issues that they'd like to address or things that concern them. There are ones that sort of tend to be more common than others. And I think, you know, where we're dealing with people that don't really want to have a large chunk of their estate taken out, either by inheritance tax or by the social impacts being things like divorce or, you know, maybe a spendthrift beneficiary. I think people tend to want to engage with their planning because they have a main issue that they're anxious about. And what we tend to develop over the course of a set of conversations is identifying where you have different things you'd like to avoid. But if, if we aim to avoid every, every conceivable disadvantage, what that tends to mean is you don't end up doing anything at all. Um, because there is no investment that is completely perfect in terms of risk, charges, sustainability, access, flexibility, simplicity. Um, so it's a case of working out what the priorities for a person are and which things need to be avoided as an absolute, what the red lines are, but also where we're prepared to make compromises in terms of things where ideally, you know, we'd be able to have, a, for example, a high risk investment, sorry, a high return investment without high volatility. But in reality, of course, such an investment doesn't exist. So it's a case of trying to understand where the where you'd rank the different priorities and aim to find the best possible fits in the scope of what actually does exist in reality to give someone what they need and help avoid the main anxiousnesses they have. And so in terms of the sort of main kind of anxieties, is it around, um, oh gosh, I've been working all my life, I'm used to having a salary coming in and suddenly it stops. Where's my money going to come from? Will I have enough? What if I live too long? Can be that. That's that's quite a good example. I mean, particularly at retirement, or if, if you're coming up to retirement and you have, over the course of a lifetime, people are trained to turn income into capital. You set aside money that you don't need now because you know that you're going to need it later. So at the point of retiring, the question of how much is enough and, you know, maybe you might have guaranteed income streams from state pension or from the final salary pension. You might have consistent but non-guaranteed income streams from things like rental income or maybe an investment bonds. And then you might have a need to top up those income streams using a withdrawal from the rest of your portfolio. And being anxious that you know you might be in a position where you run out of money is clearly something which, you know, having an element of planning and an element of carefulness and care paid to those sorts of plans is is something that hopefully can alleviate the anxiety. 
in terms of um, where that fits in with things like inheritance tax planning, if we look at how much money someone's likely to need over the course of a lifetime, we'll be able to, able to estimate you know, the point of death, is there likely to be such an amount of money left that there might be a tax liability or might be a need to protect the inheritances after that happens. And do you have situations where people come to you slightly last minute because they realise, oh goodness, where's my life gone? I'm now 50-something. I might need to retire sooner than I expected. Uh, help, what do I do? Um... I think most people are actually pleasantly surprised once they start engaging with the planning in terms of just what is possible. I mean, if you get to 55 and you're thinking about retirement, but you haven't accumulated enough money to be able to afford to do what you want to do, it is just a case of seeing clearly what is possible and what solutions you can take um, to have the lifestyle that you potentially could afford in the future, whether that's working for longer and starting to put money aside, even if it's late in the day. Or potentially, if you want to retire at a fixed point in time, um, having to get by on a lower income. And it could be a combination of those. You know, you don't necessarily... The old regime of working until you're 65, getting your final salary pension and your gold watch and retiring on an income that's index-linked for the rest of your life, unfortunately, isn't as simple as that these days. Um, so it, you know, it could be the case that there's a sort of hybrid approach, maybe go part-time, maybe have... Um, you know, different things that generate income in different ways. And I think having the ability to look at a, a fairly sophisticated piece of software, which enables us to analyze all the various different moving parts to someone's portfolio and see from the complex inputs what actually the tends to be fairly straightforward output, which is you can retire at such an age on this income. And if you live to the age of 100, you're likely not to run out of money. And of course, while we can't predict the future, having sensible and conservative assumptions within the model. For example, fairly fairly frequently we'll use a, an assumed growth rate of, say, 4% a year, inflation of 3% a year. If you live to the age of 100 under those circumstances, is your spending pattern going to cause your money to run out while you're still with us? And if the answer to that is no, then hopefully that alleviates some of that concern about can I retire now? If the answer to that is yes, you are likely to run out of money, you then have the ability to do something about it. And hopefully knowing what that plan of action is will give you a little bit more peace of mind. So let's use me as a case study. I, for many years, just paid into my pension. And I always thought, you know, all the bad news out there. I'd love to retire early, but probably I can't. And so I just plodded on and I wanted to, to have time to do my writing, but actually I just carried on being a lawyer. And I have to say, whenever the pension statement popped through the letterbox, because it normally comes that way, with sheets and sheets of paper and loads of numbers, I just go, oh my God, I can't cope with this. And I put it to the bottom of the drawer. Um, is that normal? Am I just particularly pathetic? Or are, are a lot of people like that? I think that's entirely normal. And I would say I'm in that category when it's not a financial planning issue. <laughs> You know, when it comes to something where a particular subject is not your day-to-day uh, part of your wheelhouse, um, if you get something overly complicated and long-winded, the tendency is to shove it to the back of the proverbial filing cabinet and ignore it. And when it's, yeah, say for example, anything to do with a car, if I get a statement saying, or the flashing light up on the car saying, you know, your wheel pressure is out of whack, you need to take it to get... 
um, or the ABS is turned off and the temptation just keep driving it slightly more slowly and then maybe get around to it at some point over the next couple of months because unless the light is red the car's basically fine um, and I think that is obviously I'm sure if a mechanic were to say that you'd, you'd have a <laughs> send a bit of a shiver down your spine but that is what people do with financial literature and I think as well financial literature as a as an entity doesn't really help matters because what you actually refer to there the statements that you get are under the assumption that what you said when you took the policy out I'm going to retire in full at the age of say 60 and I'm going to buy an annuity at that point in time when they send you the statement every year they use those assumptions that you made probably decades previously and current annuity rates based on you being in magnificent health to give you a standard rate for what you would get if you swapped our pension pot for a guaranteed income for the rest of your life. Now, those guaranteed incomes are low because they're linked to interest rates. So potentially they're, they're looking to become slightly less low after yesterday's Bank of England's um, interest rate hike. But uh, the, the concept that the insurance company knows you'll buy an annuity at the age of 60 is by definition flawed because looking at how many annuities I've recommended in the last decade, you can count them on one hand. So when you compare that to what people actually do in terms of, you know, where you invest money and then withdraw from that investment to give you your income, you're not necessarily in the same position, provided you're happy to take a long-term view of investments and you're comfortable with a bit of volatility in the short term. When you get a standardised piece of literature from a product provider, so when we set up an investment for a client, you would look at the quote, you would look at the key features illustration, and they've got these standardized growth rates at what they call low, medium and high rates. And these are rates which are already conservative and then reduced in line with inflation. Now, if what happens in the key features illustrations actually passes in reality, no one would ever buy an investment or a pension. Um, I mean, they just look particularly unattractive. But it's the nature of financial regulations that when you present information, you have to present information in a specific way with calculations determined by the FCA. So all insurance companies, pension companies, investment bond providers, they're all playing by the same rules. They all, you know, all these illustrations look rubbish, depending, you know, it doesn't really matter which, uh, which provider we're talking about. Um, and yeah, if you, if you believe, um, if the assumptions in the quotes or in the um, annuity illustration turn out to be true, you're not going to have a particularly comfortable retirement. But the reassuring thing is you compare those to reality and you compare those to what has actually happened in the past. Um, I mean, even now, it's a, it's a trough in the market. We're in, hopefully it's a trough in the market. It's certainly a low point relative to, to December. Um, even if we look at now, the past performance over a five-year period of a fairly standard portfolio will likely still look pretty good relative to um, the assumptions in, in the key features illustrations. So to be worried by the technical stuff that you get sent from insurance companies, if you can interpret it and if you can look at it through the lens of what does tend to happen over the long term, hopefully that'll give some reassurance and some sort of contrast to the, the short term doom and gloom we get from the newspapers. Ah, yes, doom and gloom in the media. With everything in the news, especially these last few years, it does feel very much that we are living in an age of anxiety. But is that part of our inbuilt psychological predisposition to negative events? What psychologists call negative bias? Well, there's two things, I think, psychologically with the difference between what we see in the newspapers and what we experience in reality from long-term investing. 
And first of all, even under normal certainty, you know, doom and gloom aside, people tend to feel investment losses twice as much as they feel investment gains. Um, you know, there's a psychological aversion to react to risk that is sort of built into the human mind because that's what stopped us getting eaten by saber-toothed tigers. Um, so humans are already risk averse. and They're already more focused on avoiding losing money than the idea of building up wealth over a period of time. But if you combine that natural aversion with uh, what we actually get in terms of the newspapers, and this year has been an un- unusual year, and not necessarily just in terms of the amount of doom and gloom, but I can think of two occasions this year where the front pages of the newspapers have been good news. And that is very unusual. And I, I remember the first time this year, it was a, at the point where Nazanin got released from prison in, in Iran. Front page of the newspapers, most of the newspapers, was covering that story. And of course, you know, we're recording this in early August, so we're still probably you know, slightly recovering from you know, the England ladies football team winning the Euros. And that was the second occasion inside a year. And under normal circumstances, there are zero um, good news articles on the front of a newspaper. And the rest of it, of course, is doom and gloom. And at the moment, we are in difficult economic conditions. You know, you've got all the various different headlines about Ukraine and Russia, about interest rates increasing, for the, which is bad, obviously, for people with debt. You've got inflation nearly at double digits. And in the short term, all these things contribute to volatility. And the idea that markets are going down as well as up and people are worried and if you do have sufficient worry that it causes you to panic and cash in your investments, that is how people lose money. So, yeah, I mean, it, in terms of anxiety, it doesn't do anyone any favours. And it almost encourages people to try and um, either time an investment decision. So the markets have gone down. I'm going to pull all my money out and put it in cash, which, of course, is often the worst thing you can do because you're then realising a loss. And in fact, times like this, if you do have large cash holdings, and if you are able to take a long-term view because money's not needed for spending in the short term, it's needed for security in the long term, investing money after a 20 or 30% market drop like we've seen this year can often mean that long-term returns are much higher because obviously you're buying an investment at a cheaper price. So anxiety naturally potentially... Investments are a funny thing in the sense there's the paradox of people usually want to buy them more when they're expensive. And I can't think of another asset class where that's the case. So, you know, the fact that the the prevailing sort of sense of, of our thing, you know, the world's going to hell, everything's gone down and, and, and I don't want to lose more money. It's actually a, a fairly normal sort of pattern that people tend to get greedy and excited and bullish when the market's very expensive after the market's already gone up for a sustained period of time. When things become cheaper, you know, investment's gone down in value, people think, well, actually, it's now the right time to invest because all the prevailing doom and gloom and investments are losing money. Now, we can't ever say what investments will do in the short term from the point we make a decision. So we don't attempt to. There is no way to time the market. But there is, you know, there is the idea that by putting money that you don't need in the short term in something where over the long term you are protected from inflation because you have the higher long term growth potential. I think the reassurance there of having, um, I suppose, avoided the loss of money if it's if you're considering investing and you haven't yet done it, the fact that you have avoided making the loss that other people potentially might have could be then something which would give you that reassurance. And if you have invested the money and you've seen it go down in value, obviously the last thing you want to do is to cash in the investment at that point and realize that loss. And again, by taking a long-term view, 
you'll find that the market will recover eventually. The unknown is just how long that'll take and whether it's got a bit further to go down before that does happen. So the other tricky thing around anxiety is, what do we do with the information that we have? How do we make a decision whether to take action to sell or to invest or to do nothing? That can be one of the toughest things for many of us when anxiety is very present in any situation, and especially when trying to make decisions around our finances, where there is a lot at stake. So I think with, I think making the decisions at the right time, when you're presented with a decision that you've been putting off or needing to make, collecting all the information and acting because there is a decision to be made is something which I think anxiety can, on the one hand, be a benefit because it means you put a sufficient amount of care and attention into making that decision. You're less likely to get scammed, for example. You're less likely to end up in sort of a dodgy investment because you spent presumably four weeks between sets of meetings doing a little bit of research and making sure the company you're dealing with is is trustworthy and and competent so when you're presented with a need to make a decision um, as a result of your own planning or your own needs to address an issue that you have i think getting all that information and taking the time and effort to analyze and understand it is one where people that are more anxious are potentially more liable to doing that level of research. I think the problem then comes is when you have accumulated all the information that is potentially necessary to make such a decision, if you're still anxious just about the fact of making the decision, when there is no more information that is going to arise, it is a case of saying, right, now is the time for me to effectively, you know, come down on one side of the fence. So in terms of, you know, where anxiety can be helpful, I think it's a sort of double-edged sword where you need to make a decision. But what we're talking about in terms of investment markets is where there is no need to make a decision because it's just the way the markets are. If you are paying attention to your investment portfolio, we have some people that look at it every day, some that look at it every week. Most clients, I think, look at it less than monthly. And you have a few that look at it almost never. Um, And actually, those few are focusing on doing things in life and, you know, doing things that actually um, improve their quality of life, what they want to spend their retirement doing. And yeah, I might bring them up on an annual basis to have a meeting and to talk about, you know, how their planning might develop. But those that just completely ignore the performance and allow the markets to do what they do over the long term, get the same results as the ones that look at it monthly um, in terms of the investment performance. But they get that uh, performance without the same amount of, I think, not necessarily stress, because I think for some people, the fact that they're looking at it will give them that reassurance that it is being looked at. But you know, you can't um, you can't make an investment outperformed by watching it. So, um, yeah. So you need to think about your investments like the boiling kettle, perhaps. <laughs> yeah, it could be. I mean, my funny. My uh, my brother rang me up uh, a few months ago and asked me if he still had that investment I set up for him four years ago. He'd been paying however much money a month into it, and yeah, basically it, it had gone completely on autopilot over that period of time. Um, and of course, he'd made exactly the same amount of money as if he'd been looking at it on a regular basis. But the fact that it had built up quite a lot over that period, um, because of the volatility that was in, it was in what I affectionately refer to as the death or glory portfolio, which is going to sound great to your anxious uh, listeners, I'm sure. <laughs> but it was all equity and commodities and very volatile things. Where if you're paying in a monthly amount and ignoring it for the long term, clearly you're looking at a much more um, much more aggressive uh, level of growth 
Well, I think the two, the issue I've got with things to do with anxiety is by caring so much about the outcome and focusing on every possible thing and the attention to detail, you can find people with a few different criteria will get confused in the paralysis. And the more you ask questions, the more you get technical answers from a technical specialist. And then, of course, those provoke more questions. And you end up down this rabbit hole of information where you've got so much going on that the temptation there is to say, do you know what? It's too complicated and confusing. I've spent eight weeks on this. It's doing my head in and I don't want to do this anymore. Um, And asking lots and lots of questions and understanding the answers is really useful. I think a lot of the time what anxiety does is it causes people to ask lots and lots of questions and try and understand really every minutiae of a particular course of action. And that's really when, unless you want to get my job and become a chartered financial planner, you have to at some point say, I've got all the information that I understand, I know what I want, and the company that I'm dealing with is sufficiently well qualified that I know they know what they're doing, it's now time to make a decision. And even if that decision is no, even if once you've gathered all the information, you've looked at it and say, well, I'd rather do nothing than do something, at least then the, do, the conscious decision not to take action. If someone says to me, you know, having taken all the advice and gone through the planning process, I've looked at it and actually I would prefer to just pay the inheritance tax when I die. Fine. That's a decision you've made. You can now put it to bed, tick it off your to-do list and move on with the rest of your retirement. The ones that are a bit tortuous is where people want to have all the advantages of tax efficiency, flexibility, consistency, predictability, maybe a household name investment company, but they also want to have low charges, no risk, easy to understand, something which is easily accessible. And of course that investment doesn't exist. So you're always gonna have, if you want to make a decision or if you want to avoid making a decision, you're always gonna have one thing that you can pick out of the terms and conditions, which says, oh, you know, this investment might be high growth, tax efficient and, you know, meet all my needs, but the annual charges are slightly high. So I'm going to focus on that as a as an issue and use that to say, well, I'm not really happy with to make a decision yet. Can we keep? And that to me is a it's a symptom of um, of worry, of concern, not necessarily anxiety, but it's a symptom of, you know, not being able to make a decision because there's this one thing that would that would make it not perfect knowing there is no perfect solution and knowing that you can sort of prioritize all your various different um, priorities and find the best fit there's not a perfect fit but as long as you've got um, the closest possible thing to to all your objectives met then that's hopefully what gives then people the confidence to to go ahead and make a decision or if you get to that point and you've got the closest possible fit that we've recommended versus actually do you know what you've looked at it and you don't want to do it Again, either way, it's been it's been decided. You can put it to bed, and that way you can feel a bit more reassured and confident. Yeah, that's kind of that's kind of my agenda anyway for for planning. It's just to get people to the point of either a comfortable yes and full understanding, or a no. We've looked at it, and it's now off our to do list, and we can relax. Things have moved on since 2013, where commission was payable by a provider to a financial advisor. That's not the way financial advisors get paid now. So typically, if you instruct an independent advisor, their whole job is to find from all the products that exist in the market, what combination of them is best for you. So if there is something that isn't quite right that could be amended or that you know, a slightly better provider could be found, just by being completely candid about what you like, um, it is possible for us to find alternative recommendations until it fits sufficiently well that you're comfortable. Um, that being said, 
sometimes this is a result of people having conflicts in their um, priorities. And a fairly common version of this is where people want an investment which is a sustainable one, but they also want an investment which is low cost. And I'm not going to go off on a monologue about this because it's a different subject, but ultimately most of the good sustainable investments that we're comfortable recommending do have a high annual cost from the provider. So yeah, where people have those priorities that conflict, being transparent about saying, well, there isn't something that meets your needs, which need is more important and how can we tailor it so that we're comfortable recommending something that to the best extent that you can get a good result, we've basically made compromises where appropriate and that you're comfortable um, you know, that the, what we've recommended is the best possible thing within the scope of what is possible. And if that is still not something that you want to do, then the answer is don't do anything, pay the tax. Or, uh, But in terms of getting, we, once we've got to that point where we're fully comfortable that the recommendations are sufficiently thought through, that what we've got in the report is to the fullest extent possible, the best match for someone's criteria, then it is just a case of getting to the point of a yes or a no. What I find helpful about this approach is that it simplifies any scary decision into either a yes, I will take action, or no, I will do nothing. If it's a yes, we go forward. If it's a no, we do nothing and stay where we are. The do nothing is a decision in itself, and we stop agonising about making a decision because, well, we've decided to stay where we are. But what about the reason we are thinking about this decision in the first place? Why do we want to invest our money? What is compelling us to think about retiring? My sense is that the reason for the decision is the driver for whether we decide yes or we decide no. And I think this is true not just for investment decisions, but also for any significant decision we may be facing. For example, we're thinking of changing jobs. Why? We would like to move house. Why? Understanding the push and pull behind our desire feels to me as important as gathering all the facts and figures and information and getting the most suitable advice. Our finances help us live the lives we want. It's not about counting up our gold like Midas and accumulating money for the sake of it. It's about exchanging it for something that makes our life richer. So investing our money wisely, growing it, paying into our pensions, that is all about creating the life we want now and in the future. So just to carry on my own case study story with you, um, I came to you aged 53, having had the, oh my God, here's another bit of paper, I'm just going to put it at the bottom of the drawer, and thinking I'll never have enough money uh, to retire. And my plan was, gosh, wouldn't it be amazing to retire at age 55? Um, and you did uh, some tipsy tapping on your laptop and some graphs appeared. And um, you then said, well, actually, you've got enough money to retire now. Um, and the next day, I gave in my resignation letter. Um, and since then, of course... That was a good course, day work for both of us. That was a great, that was great. <laughs> and the, But since then, there's been Brexit and Trump and I've, I've been uh, quite anxious. And I would ring 
bring you up uh, every five minutes. Peter, Peter, what shall I do? It's always all chaos. And your advice would be to me, this is again, specific to me. You said, well, actually do nothing. And so I've become one of those people that's like, oh, well, you know, I'm sure if it's anything to worry about, there is something set in my uh, investment thingy that will alert me to, and this is how technical I am and how much I understand it, is that it will tell me that I need to worry. So the fact that I've heard nothing is actually probably quite good. And meanwhile, I have been getting on with doing fun things like this podcast and enjoying my retirement and maybe the heart of of our discussion around giving ourselves permission to spend the money that we worked hard, that I, again, let me talk about me, that I worked hard over decades. Um, And I think of myself age 23, or when I first started work, your predecessor who who just popped in, he was doing the rounds, he was a pension advisor, and he said, "Uh, have you got a pension? I said, no. Well, let's talk about it. And so I gave him bits of my salary. Then over the course of decades, he moved on, somebody else took his place, then you came along. And over the decades of giving him bits of my salary, um, I came to a point where actually, wow, I've got this money that I can uh, use for my retirement. And I thank that young girl that I was age 23 going, oh, okay, then I'll put some money in. I have a mortgage advisor. You know, I take mortgage advice from, from, my, from my old colleague, Paul, at the company that you met me at, because I have absolutely no interest in watching, you know, what interest rates are doing in the short term, who's got the best fixed rate, do you need to remortgage, all these various different things. I potentially could, but of course, I've got a job. So in terms of whether people need advice, if you have the time, the effort, the energy and the inclination to work it all out for yourself and do it yourself, you may feel you don't need a financial advisor. And in that scenario, you know, clients that I see that have done potentially 90 to 95% of the things that I would have done still have 5% of landmines that could potentially go wrong. Um, so yeah, delegating that to someone that's got 100% of the answers, I think then allows you to relax and potentially even take a step back from the process and not have to be as involved as they might be if they're doing it themselves. You know, the reason why I have a mortgage advisor isn't just to do with products and interest rates, fundamentally i just can't be bothered sorting out my own mortgage application dealing with the admin that comes off the back of it working out who's got the different underwriting criteria and who's going to ask for you know a blood sample in terms of all the various different proofs i just don't want to do it you know for the same reason i don't do my own laundry you know if i go i worked out when i was in my early 20s that i was spoiling one shirt a week um, doing my own ironing every week. I do the ironing, and there'd be another one of my shirts with this crusty black stuff that had come off the iron. And yeah, fair enough. I was only spending twenty quid on a shirt, but that's twenty quid a week I was spending. And when I walked past a, a dry cleaning shop and they had a sign up saying they'll do, you know, they'll wash and press one of your shirts for two pounds. I realised that for half the weekly cost of doing my own, I could get someone else to do it, do a better job, and I'd spend less time and energy doing something I didn't enjoy doing. And I think, yeah, in terms of what an advisor does, to a certain degree, you know, it, it is the case that we feel that we do a terrific job for everyone that potentially most people wouldn't be able to do themselves, but also the ability to not have to bother with the process to allow someone else to do a job that's potentially technical and not necessarily the most entertaining thing in the world. Um, And you can focus on the things in life that matter. Which brings me actually to something you said to me, what is money for? And how we translate money 
into positive energy or happiness or something. I've probably garbled. Oh, to convert money into happiness. Yeah, absolutely. So one of the more fun things that I do in terms of the cash flow model is where people are already financially secure and they have liquid wealth um, over and above what they need to investigate how much more they can spend and still have that financial security. And actually, a lot of the time, this can come up with some quite, um, quite surprising answers where people have potentially misunderstood how rich they are relative to their their need for need for expenditure so in that scenario if i said to a couple that you can spend thirty thousand pounds a year more than you already are um for the rest of your lives plus inflation but actually are you going to do it and how are you going to do it and what are we going to use that money for if it's not spending maybe it's gifting or something charitable um it becomes a little bit more than just transactional advice at that point it's far more to do with um as you say the for you what does it mean what does happiness mean and how do we focus the the money in that direction and not really an anxiety thing i think the anxiety maybe it is maybe it's the anxiety of are you going to give yourself permission to spend your own money that you've accumulated over the course of a lifetime the thing that you said earlier about the the fact that you left that financial planning meeting with me and resigned from your job the next day and it's those moments that are really just it, it, the fact that you can have that level of confidence and that level of sort of a, a change to the life as a result of a chat for a couple of hours, a couple of times over the course of, what was it, four or five weeks. Um, and just by looking at things, analysing, getting the whole picture, getting all the information to hand and going, right, now's the time for me to, to look at it. You know, I think I was surprised as you were when we uh, when we got to that point and you actually went ahead with it. Because I'm coming back to my example, just because you could do something doesn't mean you will. You know, what we often see when we look at, you know, the spend more option is, yeah, you could spend 20 or £30,000 a year more on on fun or you could give away a six-figure sum to your children. Are you going to do it, though? And, of course, quite often the answer is no, that would make me horribly uncomfortable. I'm not going to give my kids hundreds of thousands of pounds because they don't need it. Or, um, But, yeah, no, when, when people actually go ahead with something that's such a fundamental life change, clearly that's, you know... That's a terrific day. And I think for me, it was a question of, well, do I trust one Peter? Well, he's got all the qualifications and this company, reputable company has employed him. So I, I guess he knows what he's talking about. And secondly, do I, I don't really understand the markets, but do I need to have this, what you talked about, minutiae information to make this decision? Mm. Um, and I also understood that what we I based my decision on was a model that you your software and your expertise brought to the table, and the, the usual statement uh, past performance is not proof of future results. I took that all in, and I thought, well, I just have to make a decision, mm. and if I decide to do nothing, I've got years and years of working and not having a chance to be to live my um, happiest life and be creative and maybe I wouldn't have needed to have worked all those years and I just have to go with it and I think that was the decision that the choice was for for change for something more fun more more better uh, bad English but you know more something that I wanted and I guess I just took the view well if it all goes pear-shaped I'm sure I can find something, even if I I have to go and clean people's loos or something. I'll, I'll sort something out because I guess fundamentally it was also a trust in myself, in my abilities. Mm. 
Oh, well, there was the the idea that you might actually enjoy doing further work as well. And, you know, obviously, if um, if you've got the plan that needs to return to work, clearly that gives you a lot more options in terms of things you choose to do. In terms of the confidence in, if you can you have confidence in the advisor without necessarily drilling down into the nitty gritty of the 60 page reports that we have to write. Um, the analogy that I quite often hear um, from advisors is, you know, when when you're choosing to have a medical procedure, you go to a great lengths to make sure the person doing it is has the qualifications, it's potentially the right hospital, whether you're going private or, or NHS. But you've got no control over what happens as soon as you go under the anaesthetic. You, you at some point let go of the reins and say, well, this person seems to know what they're doing. I've done all the investigations to know that it's not a Bitcoin derivative scam from Strasbourg or whatever. Um, it's going to go into sort of textbook run-of-the-mill vanilla financial planning instruments that pretty much any regulated financial advisor in the UK will recommend something sensible. It's a case of really how well you get on with that person. Is it a dreadful chore dealing with them for a couple of hours minimum on an annual basis? And at some point you say, well, it's, it's come down on one side of the fence or the other. I've always remembered this comment that you made, which I've probably garbled that when I tell my friends, you should spend enjoy your retirement spend your money and the last check you write um do you want to tell the joke <laughs> well yeah it's not i mean not necessarily an inheritance tax one for those of my clients that have kids but for those that don't it went that the last check that you ever write is to the undertaker and it bounces <laughs> and i think that is just such a cap- captures for me a kind of enjoying your life and i guess i i would say for those who have responsibilities once you've sorted out your responsibilities um you can actually still enjoy yourself to that extent so anxiety can really be a help when we need to make important decisions affecting the rest of our lives especially where those decisions may also impact on people we love and our dependents. Anxiety makes us pause and do our research, find out as much as we can, make sure that we are not about to give our money away to a scammer or some get-rich-quick scheme that is not what it's cracked up to be. All that is a positive outcome of being cautious. However, sometimes, because we are very aware of how important that decision is and what is at stake, our dear friend anxiety can become overwhelmed by the responsibility of it all. What if it's the wrong decision? What if this choice takes me down a path that there is no coming back from? We can become potentially overwhelmed. How much information is enough? How many more angles can we take advice on? Imagine if you if you looked at the front page of the papers and saw that an investment in a balanced portfolio over the last decade would have doubled in value. That's not going to sell newspapers. That's if if there was a specific oh well you know here's Mr Jones he invested in a sensible um, diversified portfolio every year in his stocks and shares ISA and now he's got loads more money than he put in despite having been through three periods of of market downturns since then. That's not news. That's just what has happened. Whereas the things that the more dramatic things you'll see in the paper, if you you know the complaint section of the money section is brilliant because you can see, you know, ninety-two year old lady was sold a hundred percent global equity fund, saw it drop in value, lost forty grand, and is now having a go at the um, terrible advisor that was to set that up. And it amazes me that there are actually enough of these that can fill a newspaper because we're so 
so well regulated now. But clearly that's a lot more dramatic. Seeing someone who's lost money is complaining about it. And so as a human race, we are just naturally drawn to negatives and disasters. So uh, perhaps there's something to be said to be taking things with a pinch of salt and actually taking a step back mm. and looking at the alternatives or the actual practicalities beyond the uh, doom and gloom uh, massive headlines. Mm. And I think maybe as well, having some experience in the real world, rather than just reading about the third parties that are making the most noise. You know, everyone's got that friend that's made 400% from Bitcoin. And if you'd have listened to him, you'd have lost your shirt in the last uh, in the last year or so. <laughs> um, but if you've got, say, I mean, I think things like the junior ICER and the lifetime ICER are quite good at getting people at a young age invested in things that might have a little bit more complexity and a bit more growth potential than a, than a bog standard cash ICER. Um, because if you have some experience of investing in funds or shares or longer term investments in a small way from a young age, things do become a lot less daunting and frightening. And my example of the Blue Passport Brigade from uh, from Nationwide, um, invariably, these are hundreds of thousands of pounds sitting in cash where people have never invested before. And by the time you get into your 60s and 70s, the idea of risking that money carries such a negative connotation that it's just never going to happen. Um so I think getting some experience of what happens in the real world, if you are potentially a slightly more nervous person, just doing it in a small way, there's ways of getting money invested from very small sums. You know, the Lifetime ISA, for example, you can only put in £4,000 a year anyway. And I think, yeah, the difference between real world experience and sort of secondhand, you know, what have you heard from Jeff down the pub or from the prevailing boffin that's being... In, in, in the money section of whichever paper. I think just getting small decisions made make the larger decisions much easier in the future. I like this idea of reality checking our dear friend anxiety. As I talked about in episode three, let's have a chat with our old friend. Yes, dear anxiety, thank you for the warning. I know it is an important decision. Where am I getting my information and advice from? Oh, it's from a trustworthy source, so I can trust that. Or, oh, you're right, my friend. That investment sounds too good to be true. So, as you suggest, it's best to pass on it. I also like the idea of training ourselves up to make big decisions by making little ones first in the same arena. So, starting with little decisions that maximise our finances and learning bit by bit over time. All those practical factors based on facts and figures got me to the brink of a decision I made at the start of my career at age 23, to save and invest and pay into my pension. But all the information and data in the world could not make me make the decision to do any of that unless I wanted to. And I wanted to because I trusted that saving and investing and paying into my pension would help me grow my wealth over decades in order to achieve a dream of being able to live a good life without working at an early age. In an earlier snippet, I talked about trusting Peter's advice and the financial model that he showed me regarding the projection of my finances into my future. That trust came from years, decades even, of saving and investing and paying into my pension. 
and seeing growth, downturn, recovery, more growth, more downturns, more recovery, and so on. I saw for myself that over the long term, my savings did in fact grow in excess of falls during the downturns. I also gained knowledge about financial matters by talking to financial advisors and reading literature from reliable sources. And while I have never spent very long in the minutiae of financial products and the financial landscape, I learned enough over all those years to come to an informed decision. I also talked about trusting in myself in the event that my decision to retire early went pear-shaped. That trust did not suddenly appear out of nowhere. That trust came from knowing that in the past, whenever I have faced setbacks in matters affecting my income, redundancy, and also other bad situations at work that put my job at risk, as well as living through several recessions during the 80s and 90s, I've always managed to find a solution. I worked as a temp secretary during one period. I taught English in another. I cut down on my spending. I've never been in debt, other than a mortgage, in all these periods. I could trust in myself that in the event that my retirement income was not enough, I would find a way to solve the problem. Without being aware of it, I had been taking those small steps that Peter talks about to build skills and confidence around money and financial matters. I did not need to know everything about pensions and ISAs and whatnot. I just needed to know enough to make a decision that ended up changing my life for the better. In all of us, there is a resilience and life experience and inner strength that perhaps our old friend Anxiety sometimes overlooks in her eagerness to keep us safe. Instead of giving her full control over us and our decision, we can sit down and have a chat with her. Giving ourselves that space can help us reflect on all the times in our lives when we have got through tough times. And we can say to our dear friend, you were there too with me, remember, during those other tough times? And look, we made it through. You helped me with your concerns and worries back then, and you're helping me now. Thank you. But you know what? I got this. But I think the most important factor that helped me make these decisions, whether to invest at age 23 or whether to retire at 53, was, what did I want for the rest of my life? The huge decision to retire early came easily to me because of the powerful push and pull beneath the practicalities of the decision. I could have trundled on working in a career where I was well-respected and which suited my skills and talents professionally, and which also allowed me to do amazing creative work alongside. I could have been quite happy and comfortable safely where I was with a regular paycheck coming in and not having to ever worry about my savings being depleted by a life of expenditure without any income, or my financial situation being dependent on the performance of my investments or pension fund. But I wanted something that was more important to me, more meaningful and purposeful 
than all that. I wanted time. I wanted my time. I wanted to own my time. To choose what I did with it. To be answerable to no one. No more appraisals. No more targets. No more fitting in with what other people expected or wanted me to do in exchange for a paycheck. I wanted to have time to write and be creative. Or not. I wanted to have the freedom to choose whether I got up in the morning or not. I wanted to experience my life fully while I still had the physicality and health to do it, while I still had the mental capacity and sense of fun and curiosity. When facing our decisions, big or small, what is the most powerful pull for us? Beyond the facts and figures and pros and cons and all the practicalities, what is the yearning in our hearts? Is it so big, so scary, and perhaps so magnificent that it doesn't seem to fit into our regular little lives? After focusing up till this moment on practicalities and facts and information and advice to make the right decision, I'd like to throw a question into the mix that I feel can connect us with a positive energy to make the final decision. This question reaches beyond just financial matters. It is at the core of every important and life-changing decision we may ever face. Is the yearning of our hearts to make a change in our lives so big, so scary, so magnificent? that it doesn't seem to fit into our regular world that we are so used to. Is this perhaps why anxiety is scaring the hell out of us about an important decision? Is our old friend anxiety trying to protect us from something so big and so gorgeous because somehow we feel we could not possibly deserve it? Little anxiety who likes things as they have always been who likes to keep us safe and within our comfort zone, is saying, Who are we to have our heart's desire? What right do we have to be truly happy and fulfilled? Is this the reason why, at the moment when we are trying to make a huge change in our lives that we dream could make us happy, anxiety puts worst-case scenarios into our minds? These worst-case scenarios potentially stop us from truly achieving our most beautiful hopes. Because what if we achieved our dreams and they are not what we had imagined them to be? We might be hurt or let down or disappointed. We might fail at our dream. What then? What would be left of us? Might the pain of that be so horrendous that we might not survive it. So it's better not to change, anxiety says to us, not to take the step, just in case we might be devastated. Better the devil you know, that's what they say. Better to be safe than sorry, you know. Dear anxiety, doing her best to protect us. I have used my own story during this episode as a case study. The biggest and most magnificent dream I had as a young woman, just starting out in my career, 
was to be free, while I still had the physicality and mental prowess and joie de vivre to enjoy that freedom. And when the moment came, I seized it. Yes, I was sensible and made sure my finances were sorted. And then I seized the moment. For some of you, deciding to retire may not hold the same wow factor as it does for me. But I imagine you have your own magnificent dream that is specific to you and all that you would love to bring into being and where your old friend anxiety is being very active. As I say thank you to Peter Ditchburn for sharing his financial planning experience with us in this episode, I want to leave you with this question that goes beyond finances and careers and retirement. What magnificent dream or gorgeous longing in your heart might your old friend anxiety be trying to protect you from? How might you collaborate with your dear friend to bring it into being in a way that both of you are comfortable with? You can find links to some of the things I talked about, as well as photos and credits on the show notes page. You can use the bit.ly short link, bit.ly, bit.ly forward slash anxiety advantage, or go to my website, tigerspirit.co.uk, and click through to the anxiety advantage. Today, I reflected on financial anxiety and making decisions with the input of Peter Ditchburn. If you have not yet come across episode three, Hello Darkness, My Old Friend, please do check it out. It's the episode where I talk about how a Simon and Garfunkel song can help us reframe our relationship with anxiety. You can find it as part of the Anxiety Advantage podcast on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. Please also do follow or subscribe to the podcast and new episodes will pop into your pod listening app as soon as they are published. It's free. These podcasts come out of my personal experience and perspective, and I do not claim to speak for everyone who may be living with anxiety. Views expressed by my guests are entirely their own and do not represent my views. Also, I should say that neither Peter nor I are giving any financial advice in this episode. This episode is about exploring our relationship to finances, decision-making and anxiety. The content of these podcasts is for informational purposes only. If you're affected by anything in these podcasts, please seek the advice of your doctor or other qualified professional. I'm Yang Mei Ui. You can find me on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram, where I am at Tiger Spirit UK. There is also a dedicated Anxiety Advantage Twitter account at Anxiety Thriver. Or you can simply Google the podcast, The Anxiety Advantage and my name, Yang Mei Ui. Thank you for listening and see you again soon.